Welcome to the North Sound Church Podcast. For more information about North Sound Church, please visit our website at northsoundchurch.com. It is so uh, wonderful and a privilege to welcome Liz, our own Liz, as our guest uh, speaker today. Liz, come on up here while I talk about you, Liz. Um, I, I need somebody by my side after what's going to happen this afternoon when I get home. Um, so Liz and I go back. Uh, it's got to be about 40 years. I know we don't look like it, but nonetheless, it's, uh, it's true. Uh, and uh, when we started North Sound Church, Liz and Roy weren't here. Uh, but I wanted them here, so I negotiated a price with them. I suggested 500 to, to switch churches. Uh, we argued about, I think we settled on 750, and uh, that was, what, 15 years ago? Something like almost that. Almost 20. Almost 20 years. Yeah, so almost from the, almost from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. For those of you that don't know me, I'm kidding. We don't pay for people to... <laughs> However, uh, if you're interested in North Sound and aren't sure yet, just talk to me after. Uh, so anyway, Liz um, has been a teacher at King's, uh, history teacher at King's for many years. She, after doing that, became our children's pastor at North Sound Church, and we had the privilege of working together for several years. I think I tried to recruit you again oh, after yeah. that, uh, mm -hmm. but she was too smart to come back and, uh, and do that. Um, but about 10 years ago, um, I had heard about Liz's uh, mom and her story because I'm a I was a history major and Liz a history teacher maybe that's why we get along so good and um, and, I, and I knew something about World War two I, I kind of interested in World War two history and there's a move a book and then a movie that came out called a bridge too far anybody remember that a bridge too far and uh, it told the story of operation market garden that took place in the Netherlands when the Allies tried to get a sort of a second front going on into Germany, into Berlin to try to end the war quickly. The British, the Canadians, I think, were the ones that were primarily a part of that. And uh, so um, the bridge too far uh, was they just didn't have enough troops to be able to accomplish what they needed to. I think most came in, parachuted in, and so they just didn't have what they needed. But they almost got there, but there was a bridge too far, one bridge too far, and that's what the movie is about. The bridge too far took place, the, the, that episode in history took place in the village of Arnhem, and I had discovered from Liz that her mom was a nurse right at that time in World War II in the hospital in Arnhem. And so she shared with us about 10 years ago, and as we talked about Mother's Day and Father's Day this year, I thought it would be really good to hear about the, the legacy that we have from that generation that's gone before us. And so Liz is going to share today uh, about her mom and her story. And if you notice, the theme has been faithfulness all morning. Liz will be talking about God's faithfulness. And then uh, on Father's Day, just over a month from now, Pastor Mark Morrison will be back with us. And Mark is going to talk about his grandfather who was a pioneering missionary in China. And so uh, we're gonna have fun, and at least for a couple of weeks, you're not gonna have to listen to me. And everybody said? Amen. Well, I wasn't expecting you to actually go. <laughs> Thanks, Liz. Actually, the first time we came to North Sound Church, <clears throat> unfortunately, my cell phone went off, and Pastor Barry immediately made fun of me from the platform. So I thought, oh, I'm at home now. <laughs> I wanted to say uh, a happy Mother's Day, North Sound Church. 
it's a good day, right, in the house of the Lord. And I want to say thank you, especially to Sheila, for that song. Sheila herself is a walking story of God's faithfulness. And I like that song very much because God is a generational God. He was faithful to my grandparents, to my parents. He's faithful to our generation, to the next generation. And um, why I love that verse that Livy um, read for us. He's faithful. He simply cannot deny himself. So thank you, Sheila. Um, uh, she's set the tone. This is a picture of my mom. She's 85 years old. And one of the uh, greatest things about um, the end of her life was that she was so joyful. And uh, even when she had her dementia, it was always uh, something to laugh about. And, and, and when you hear her story, that is God's faithfulness to my mom. So mom's story really is a story of God's faithfulness. We're in the middle of a sermon series, um, uh, Letters to the American Church. And when Pastor Barry quoted N.T. Wright not too long ago, I thought, yeah, this is it. It is that the power of love overcomes the love of power. And this, uh, is, a this is a picture of my dad's um, uh, identity card uh, of the Netherlands um, during the World War II. We always call it the war, and we know there's other wars, but in our family it's always the war. I did teach at King's for uh, more than 20 years, and I taught um, the Holocaust. I wanted the kids to always think, how did a, a, a highly sophisticated population succumb to somebody like Hitler? And I always ask that question, so I taught the Holocaust in that context. And um, I must have taught it like 60 times, and every time I drove home, there was an internal lament over the loss of the lives uh, because of one man's insanity. And, um, and then in one of my trips to uh, Jerusalem, I was visiting the Holocaust Museum called Yad Vashem, and I said to the tour guide, I don't think I have the emotional wherewithal to yet again go through the story of the Holocaust. And he said, look for the joy. And I thought, you're crazy. How do I look for joy in such a horrific situation? And I found it. I just said, okay, Lord, I'm open. Just open my eyes. And I found it. I found it with so many scriptures. I found it in the fact that the Jews would continue to celebrate their liturgy. They would have their uh, Sabbath meals on Friday night. And I found it that they, because they found themselves in community. And I was thinking, um, and this is a little pin you could buy there. It's uh, olive branch and barbed wire. And I was thinking about you. How many of your stories is really the story of God's faithfulness? And that every time we gather as a church and we are in community and we're in the word and then we do this liturgy called the Lord's Prayer. Even this morning we did the liturgy of the Lord's Prayer. And it made me think of my mom in her extreme situation when she would say, and forgive me my trespasses as I forgive 
the Germans who trespassed against me. And I remember growing up as a child listening to my father weep, saying, Lord, help me to forgive the Germans. Help me. It was an extreme situation for them, and many of us face extreme situations. In fact, I, 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 when I found out that COVID was a global pandemic, and the fear was palpable, right? We all remember that, right? The fear was palpable. And I would say to myself, God was faithful to my mom and dad during World War II. He will be faithful to me. And I repeated it to myself again and again. And so, yes, it was a very difficult situation for us, but it was not, for me, it was not a fearful time. I love the fact that um, Olivia read that Second Timothy. It, it's how God identifies himself. He just says, I'm faithful. I cannot deny myself. And it is something worth pondering about, right? And every song that we sing has to do with God's faithfulness. And he holds us fast. And my mom's story illustrates that. So my mom, in 1977, a book came out called A Bridge Too Far. And, um, and my mom, after 33 years of silence, said, this is my story. And I was a history nerd then, and I would ask questions like, oh, and what kind of outfit did you have to wear? And what kind of food did you eat? And what did the hospital look like inside? And, and my asking my moms those questions, she started to tell the story of an extreme situation she found herself in and did not realize that in my asking, she was, uh, her memory was starting to be healed. This picture is poignant of my mom. Now remember the first picture of my mom at 85 and she's smiling, but this picture, her war experience is etched in her eyes. This is right, taken right after the war. So my mom um, uh, was a, when the war broke out uh, in 19, well in the Netherlands, war came in 1940, right? April, I mean uh, May the, for a fifth was, is our um, Memorial Day. And when the war broke out, mom was a 17-year-old student nurse in the town of Harlem. And Harlem would be a familiar town to you if you have ever read The Hiding Place or heard about Corrie Tim Boehm. And she was a, her name is Wilhelmina Kulevain. And, um, and they called her Mincha, but in the United States, she was called Willie. Uh, and she's named, my uh, daughter Gwen she is named after my mom. And uh, mom said she only wore that hat once, just for the picture, just saying. <laughs> and um, so she and dad and that generation spent 13 years in a very difficult period of time. So I want to just give you a really brief a uh, backstory of the war. I have to, I'm a teacher, right? But uh, we know that um, uh, the German aggression was to dominate um, all of Europe uh, for what I call the murderous idea of uh, making living space 
for the master race. So by the time it's 1941, uh, Germany really is dominating Eastern Europe and Western Europe and um, most of North Africa. And, um, and, and he, they invaded, uh, the war officially broke out when they invaded Poland in 1939, but then they had what they called the phony war, which was war was declared, but they were not actually engaged in battles until the Germans started to go into places like Denmark and Norway and the Benelux countries in France in 1940. So yes, war came to the Netherlands on May the 5th, 1940, and that's when mom was working in the hospital in Harlem and then uh, the British made a valiant uh, attempt to stop in the Battle of Britain in, in the summer of 1940 and then but really they needed the United States right and then we we know that the United States doesn't enter the war until Pearl Harbor December 1941 and what is really amazing is within three months they've got boots on the ground and they have a plan of how the war is going to be conducted. And they had decided, and I'm saying they, that means the mucky mucks, you know, the military leaders. Here's my mom, an ordinary person doing her thing, and these military leaders are, are talking about how they're gonna conduct the war. And they decided that they were going to actually win the war in Europe before they would win it in uh, the Pacific, uh, because VE Day happens in May and VJ Day happens in September. So this is the way they decided they were going to fight the war. They went up North Africa, do you see the arrows? And then up the what is called the soft underbelly of the Mediterranean, Italy. Um, and then we've got these uh, turning points in the war, Stalingrad 1943 and D-Day 1944, and I don't want you to forget D-Day because it looms large in Mom's story as well. And so they were all on a rush to get to uh, Berlin, and then we know VE Day, victory in Europe happens on May the 8th, 1945. And in the meantime, Mom, and dad fall in love. Mincha Echeret. This is taken after the war. Um, <clears throat> they were just doing their ordinary thing. And mom was just doing what she was always, she loved nursing, she always did what she, you know, she was just an ordinary person doing her ordinary things. But it was not an ordinary time, especially for the men. It was actually a very dangerous time for the men. So there were, uh, um, uh, I have, there were five in that generation, dad, his brother, Pete, and then my mom's brother, Luke, and Stephen, and the youngest one, his name was Vim. And so um, my dad went into hiding, um, Luke went into hiding, Om Stephen had to go into hiding. He was living in the east. He was, uh, he went into hiding with a farmer who was helping uh, Jewish young men learn how to farm so that they could go to Palestine and farm there when the war broke out. So Om Stephen was part of this Dutch underground to get the Jews into hiding. And for that, the farmer is listed as a righteous Gentile at Yad Vashem. And then Om Pete. 
So what would happen is if, if something happened to a German soldier, they would go into the neighborhood and they would round up all the young men between the ages of 15 and 25. And then they shipped them off to Germany to work as slave laborers. Some of them would work into camps. Some of them worked in the factories. And some of them worked as farmers because the Germans were, were conscripting their own guys to fight in the war. So these guys became slave laborers. And I don't know where Om Pete worked, uh, but he, my Oma, my grandmother, did not know if, where he was for the duration of the war. And that was Om Pete. Both of my grandparents were part of the resistance. Op, uh, grandfather, my opa Kulvain, well that's my mom's dad, in the east was part of the Dutch underground getting Jews into safety. Not just Jews, they also helped allied pilots uh, get into safety, get them released so that they could go back and fight some more of the war. And then opa Klumper in the west, um, my dad's dad was part of the Dutch military. And so they were resistors. So my mom was doing her ordinary thing, nursing, and then the guys were um, in trouble. So how did mom start in Harlem and end in Arnhem? So I wanna just draw your attention to the map uh, I put triangles on there. Harlem is in the west. Enschede, which is where my mom's family lives, is in the east. And then Arnhem is in the center. Do you see that? So our mom was working at the deaconess house, which, uh, where I was born 11 years after the war ended. And, uh, and uh, remember the, the Germans uh, overran the Netherlands in May of 1940, but early 1941. And, and, the, and whoever, I don't know his name, is, I think it's a haunt something, uh, that, uh, that the Nazis put in control of the Netherlands was a particularly vicious individual, and especially playing the Dutch against the Dutch. So it became just not a fear, only a fearful time because it's war, but then you didn't know who you could trust, which is a really horrible way to live during that time. And so here's mom, she's working in the hospital, and the Gestapo comes to the to the head of the hospital. Now this hospital specialized in epileptic patients and the T4 action was already in place in, in Germany which was particularly horrific and I will not go into the details other than to say that it targeted the most vulnerable of society which are the disabled including epileptic patients. And the Gestapo came knocking on his door and said, uh, we are taking over the hospital. And he said, over my dead body. And that's exactly what happened. He dispersed all of the, the nurses, the doctors, the patients all over the Netherlands. And for that, he was summarily executed. And that's how mom ended up in Arnhem. So life just goes on, right? Mom's working in the hospital. She and dad are, uh, are uh, in love and they're writing letters and they're seeing each other as much as they can. The guys are in hiding. And then hell comes knocking on mom's door. So D-Day happened June 1944. VE Day is May 1945. And Operation Market Garden 
was September 1944. In Holland, it's called the Slag om Arnhem. And so, you know, there was this huge competition between Eisenhower and Patton and Field Marshal Montgomery to make it to Berlin. And Montgomery said, you know, he wanted to have the, he wanted to have the bridges, and there were a lot of bridges in southern uh, Netherlands and northern Belgium, and uh, so that he could get um, supplies to the Allied troops. And the Dutch underground and the Dutch um, uh, intelligence sent a message to him, don't come to Arnhem. There is a German panzer division right outside of town. But they're Dutch, and who listens to the Dutch? Except for you're listening to me right now, and I'm Dutch. 30,000 troops, market is the air, garden are the ground troops, and the, now the, the Dutch had already heard of D-Day, so they saw the airplanes coming overhead, and they thought, oh, we're going to be liberated. So they scrambled up and went onto the roofs of their homes. And if you've ever been to, to the Netherlands, you know the houses are thin, narrow, and then they have these attics, and the attics have windows that go like this, and they were crime, climbing up onto the roofs, and they were cheering on the airplanes until with horror they watched as the parachutists were coming down and they were being killed one after another and their hearts sank as they realized that they were in trouble, Arnhem was in trouble. There, there were, I think, two hospitals in Arnhem. The closest one nearest to the bridge is called the Elizabeth House, and it was too close to the fighting, so they closed that hospital. They put all the patients and the nurses and all that into Mom's house, hospital, which was also called Deaconess House. And uh, there was a whole lot of battling going on over that bridge. It simply was a bridge too far. And because the Netherlands was under occupation, the German soldiers that were German wounded would go into mom's hospital. And it was, it was a really difficult time. I mean, if you've ever been into uh, King's High School, King's used to be a TV sanatorium. And so I remember teaching in a classroom that used to be a patient ward, right? They're kind of awkward looking. And that's the kind of a building mom worked in, except for the top floor of the hospital was a dormitory for the nurses. 12 hours on, 12 hours off. At one point, the Germans were fighting and shooting at uh, Allied soldiers from under the beds. There were, there were patients in the beds. There were patients next to the beds. There were patients in the hallway. And the head nurse said to mom as she was taking care of one of the German soldiers, you can't take care of him, he's the enemy. And mom said, he's just a kid and I'm a Christian. And you know, my mom was small and retiring, like she would never stand in front of you, right? That would not be mom's comfort zone. But boy, she had courage and she was stubborn. And during that war, 
she, her stubbornness stood her in good stead. So she, she her love, her po- the power of love in mom overcame the uh, love of power in the head nurse. The nurses said uh, that some of the wounds from the German soldiers were so horrific, so horrific, that the nurses would cover their ears and run out of the wards as the soldiers were screaming in pain. And here's mom. She's like 20, 21 years old. And for four days, she has to be strong for the patients when bombs are going off outside the windows. It wasn't until mom started having her dementia that we found out other stories that she just kept within herself. Like she was working in a nurse's station and this German soldier thought, oh, she's cute, came up to her, started to grab her by her uh, uniform right here. She bit his hand. When mom told me that, I said, mom, you were, you were fearless. You bit his hand. And then she said to him, I'm going to tell your commanding officer. And they were more afraid of their commanding officers than what they wanted to do, than what he wanted to do to my mom. It was a very desperate time. There was such fear. It was so bad that mom and her friend uh, would put their beds together at night and hold hands falling asleep in case the hospital was going to be bombed. And it went on that way for four days until the, um, the military leaders decided to have a ceasefire on a Thursday afternoon for a couple hours. And mom then became one of a long line of refugees. Because they just, they said, okay, we're going to take all the citizens and civilians out of this place and we're just going to duke it out. So if you ever go to visit Arnhem now, it's actually very uh, newish. You know, it was rebuilt after the war because it was demolished during um, that Battle of Market Garden. Nobody knew if mom was alive or dead. For four days, they knew about the battle, but they did not know if mom had survived. I was recently listening to a report about the war in Ukraine, and and the uh, journalist said, it's like Mordor for all of you Lord of the Rings. It was like, it's like hell, and that's what mom lived in, that time of hell. She, she, make, uh, she was able to get a, a bicycle, but this is 1944, it's desperate times. It's not just desperate in the Netherlands, it's also desperate in Germany. And they had taken all of the rubber tires off of the bicycles for their war efforts. So mom's metal <laughs> bicycle tires on cobblestone. And as she's leaving, she goes crazy. And her friend said to her, you get back on that bicycle. We're going to safety. And when they go into Appledorn, her uncle, out Omvim, sees her and says, oh, there she is. The first time that they had known that mom was alive. 
And then she had to make a decision. Was she going to go to the east or was she going to go to the west? And if she went to the east, that's only seven miles from the German border, and she didn't want to do that. So she went to the west to my, my opa and oma, my dad's parents, and then they entered another very extreme time for the Netherlands, and it was called the Hunger Winter. There was no food. They ate grass, they ate birds, they ate domestic animals. Uh, miraculously, because God is faithful to my mom through this whole thing, uh, they were able to get some food, and, and it was so desperate that, that if you were caught with food in, in your bag or whatever, the Germans would take your food uh, and steal it from you. But there was one time she made it through, and uh, it was like the Lord had put a blinder on their eyes, and she made it through. And Oma, my grandmother, made soup for eight people with one potato. And they ate bulbs. And I remember I'm a history nerd, and I'm just being, I'm asking all these questions, and I said, Mom, what does a bulb do to your body, right? She's a nurse. She said, well, we couldn't eat hyacinths because they would kill us, but we ate tulip bulbs. And I said, well, how many bulbs could you eat? And she goes, well, one, because it does a real number on your gastrointestinal tract. <laughs> Mom. When she made it home to uh, dad's family, my, because my grandfather was a military man, he knew what mom had gone through. And my mother had PTSD. But when the war was over, they did a really typical Dutch thing. And they said, well, your story's not so special. We all went through the war, so nobody told their stories. And it wasn't until mom told me the stories in 1977 when she started, some of that PTSD started to go away. She was desperately afraid of airplanes flying overhead. If an airplane flew overhead, even in peacetime, she would be booking it. She would be hiding for cover. Until, because mom and dad went to Bible school in, in England, and my oldest brother and sister were born, and she was walking in the countryside, and she just cried out to God and said, if I, save me now, and he instantly delivered her from her fear of airplanes. But do you know, for my mom's whole entire life, she hated 4th of July because those bottle rockets sounded like bombs going off. And my memory of my mom is of her reacting to the um, fireworks. But mom and dad, mom's ordinary habits of reading the word, both of my mom and dad were such lovers of the word of God. Celebrating liturgy, both mom and dad were such prayers. I learned to pray at, at the knees of my mom and dad. And they live in community, and what that did, like it does for all of us, and there are those of you in this congregation that have experienced extreme situations and those ordinary coming to church saying the lord's prayer reading the word opens all of us up to that great experience of god's faithfulness i mean mom was like she's like the rest of us 
She wasn't a hero. <laughs> she would never call herself a hero. She was just an ordinary person doing what she knew what she was supposed to do. I love this picture of my mom's hands. It's in the basement of the, of the high school at King's. Um, because mom was a prayer and they invited kids to pray and, and so it's a, a picture of my mom's hands and some young kids' hands. Moms, um, I need the next one because I'm actually sleep reading the slides. Thank you. Mom demonstrated God's faithfulness in ordinary ways. She loved the person in front of her. Like taking care of these German soldiers <laughs> and doing the next good thing. She just did whatever she needed to do next. Just like we get to do that, right? And uh, this picture is of mom was featured in one of the Krista um, uh, internal magazines and where they asked mom about her story. And then I love this next slide. I just want you to take a look and see at it. It says, um, mom modeled God's manifest. God manifested his faithfulness to me. He delivered her from her fears. And as a next generation, I was watching my mom and God's faithfulness to her. That's why that song that Sheila sang, made those who come behind us find us faithful is so appropriate. Now, mom's in the middle. She has seven children, 23 grandchildren, umpteen great-grandchildren. And she reminds me of my opa Kulebane, her dad, who prayed for his grandchildren's children. He had five children, 23 grandchildren, 71 great-grandchildren, and umpteen gazillion great-grandchildren, because we are Dutch. We have to think we have to populate the world. But... The thing is, they are coming to the Lord one at a time, all five children, all grandchildren, all the great-grandchildren, the great-grandchildren. The faithfulness of God to my family, the faithfulness of my family to God. And I, for one, want to be like that to my children. I want my children to observe my life and say, yes, Liz's story is really a story of God's faithfulness. May those who come behind us find us faithful. God is a generational God. He's, he's faithful to my great-grandparents, my grandparents, my parents, us, our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren. Let's pray. Father, I just want to thank you so much for these lovely faces that are sitting in this congregation who do the ordinary things, loving the person in front of them, doing the next right thing. And when we find ourselves, and there are many who have found themselves in difficult or extreme situations, it is always, 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 we can say 100% like guarantee that you are faithful in each one of those situations. And we all have a story of your faithfulness. And I wanna just say to you, Father,
thank you. Thank you for showing who you are over and over and over again. When I hear and I see the stories of these, my friends, in this congregation, we celebrate the birth of these two babies. And we can say with confidence that you will be faithful to these two baby boys because you've been faithful to their parents and their grandparents and their great-grandparents. And Father, I just also want to say thank you so much that when we find ourselves in difficult or extreme situations, you hold us fast. You do it all the time. You simply can't help yourself. It's who you are. It's what you do. And with deep, deep gratitude, I want to say thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.